Our scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. Thank you. Whoa, there we go. Good morning. Uh, Thank you, Erica. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, Welcome. Good morning. It's uh, so uh, good to see so many of you. I love Easter. Seems that everybody, we get to church a little earlier, which is great. We've said that we're a Key West church. Just kind of come whenever you can, right? So it's neat to see people um, be here early and excited. Everybody sings a little louder, which is a lot of fun as well. So we are just, we're grateful to be able to celebrate the day with you this morning. Uh, in 1973, Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize-winning book called the, 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 excuse me, I can't say it, The Denial of Death. Uh, and the thesis of his book was that human civilization is ultimately an elaborate defense mechanism against the knowledge of our mortality. We're lying to ourselves, Becker said, trying to convince ourselves that we can beat death by avoiding it by stubbornly, uh, by stubbornly denying its inevitability. And because we do this, he went on to say, we're, it's because we're so afraid of what death brings. We're deathly afraid of death. And so we invest an inordinate amount of time and energy and emotion into strategies of denial. That's what he called them. Now, I'm inclined to agree with Becker's hypothesis in the book for two reasons. The first is, I've been given... Um, by, God, by God, a front row seat in coaching my aging grandparents towards their death. Uh, my, my 90-year-old grandparents, who still live at home together, uh, granted with full-time care there, but my 90-year-old grandparents truly believe at 90 that they're going to live forever. And sometimes I really think they are. <laughs> right? I mean... You know, but, but we're back and forth to the hospital with them and all kinds of things. And, and, you know, my grandmother had a stroke, and yet, you know, she came back from a car accident. I mean, a terrible car accident a few years ago, and then a stroke a few months ago. And it's like, she's indestructible, right? But on the way back from the hospital, it's just like, man, if we could just get over this, then everything would be back to normal. <laughs> and it's just, it is just an amazing thing to watch. Uh, how... how how quick we are to really work hard to deny the inevitability of death. But the second reason that I'm inclined to agree with Ernest Becker is because the Scripture seems to teach the same thing. If you would, I'm gonna, we're going to use this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 that Erica just read to us. We're also going to, to use the passage in Hebrews 2 that we read as an assurance of pardon. 
And if you look there more carefully in, in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2 says that there's a, a hierarchy of evil in the universe and that the weapon, this spiritual evil called the devil or Satan or the adversary uses, the weapon he uses against us is the fear of death. And so the campaign of evil that Jesus came to undo is a campaign of fear. And the threat of death is Satan's favorite weapon. It is the fear that is underneath all the other fears that enslaves us. In 1 Corinthians 15, here Paul says it this way. He says that death has a sting. Do you see that? Verses 55 and 56, death has a sting. And part of what Jesus has done in his resurrection is he's taken away the sting of death. Now, that word sting refers to a goad, which was something like a cattle prod. It would have been a long stick with a very pointy end that farmers would use to kind of stick the, the oxen with as they were plowing through the fields to, to prod them on, to goad them on in the work that they were doing. And so that's exactly what Ernest Becker he said in his book. He said, there's a fear of death that's at the center of our lives that's spurring us along all through life, haunting us, as it were, enslaving us, creating background anxiety. Or the metaphor I would use is, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but anybody else live with a sense of a white noise of fear and worry? A constant hum, right? Of fear and anxiety and worry that's just kind of behind everything. And what happens is, is it makes us cautious, wary, restrained, cynical, pessimistic. You might say it makes us jumpy and joyless. Or as one commentator on Becker's book said it, this fear of death is, is there binding us with invisible ropes and confining us to safe, small, innocuous, self-centered ways of life. The sting of death, the fear of death enslaves us. It prods us along towards a certain kind of life and it guides us in this way of small, safe, selfish ways of living. And here's what I want to say this morning as we get into this text a little bit. That's not the life we've been made for. We have not been made for small, safe, selfish lives. We've been created, the Bible says, in the image of the God of the universe, which means we're royalty. We've been made to rule. We've been made for adventure. We've been made for battle. We've been made by God to play the hero. And what's standing in the way of the life that we're made for, that we refuse to live, is what the Bible calls the fear of death that keeps us cowering on the sidelines of life. Okay, but what we learn here in 1 Corinthians 15, what I want us to focus on this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has taken away this fear of death. It's taken away death's sting. Look at the way Paul says it here. He looks at Jesus' resurrection Then he turns and he looks at death and he begins to mock death. He says, oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Can I translate that for you? Death, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Right? That's That's what he's saying. He's saying, death, you have no power over me. Death, you don't scare me anymore. You've been defeated. See, when that happens, when that begins, when, when the reality of Christ's victory over sin and death and his resurrection begins to come into your life, it, un, it unlooses the fear of death so that we can really begin to live. And so this is what I want to look at this morning, okay? Talking about the sting of death. 
I want to talk about why it is that we're so afraid of death. What is the sting? Okay. Secondly, how do we overcome the fear of it? Or how do we, how do we overcome the sting? And thirdly, what does a life free from the sting of death look like? So what is it? How do we overcome it? And what does a life that is free from what Paul means by the sting of death look like? That's what we're going to do this morning. So let's just start right here. First, what is the sting of death? Why are we so afraid of death? It's right here. Paul gives a theological explanation for Ernest Becker's hypothesis. Becker diagnoses our fear of death better than anybody ever has. Paul is helpful because he tells us why we're so afraid. Look at verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me try to summarize, and let me take a lot of Christian theology for the sake of time and try to summarize and condense it, okay? Paul says the sting of death is sin. In other words, here's what Paul says. He says, the reason we're so afraid of death is because whether we're willing to admit it to ourselves or not, whether we're even consciously aware of it being the case or not, we all know we're afraid because we know that God is waiting for us on the other side of death. And in his letter to the Roman church, the Apostle Paul says, no matter how hard we may try to suppress it or deny it, we all know God's there. All of us. Even those of us who try to deny it. We all know he's there, and if he's there, then we owe him everything. He has a standard. And we also know, Paul says, that every one of us, we fail to live up to that standard, and that's what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Sin is disobeying God by either doing what he forbids us to do or by failing to do what he commands us to do. Okay? And the Bible's very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So... The sting of death is knowing that God, holy, just, righteous, all-powerful, all-knowing God is waiting for us on the other side of death and that we've offended him, that he will come against us to judge our sins. So the fear of death that enslaves us is the fear of meeting God in judgment. That's what Paul's saying. This is really profound. And it's why I love the Bible so much, because it's so elegant. It really is. We're, it's, we're being given a psychology of sin here. And not just here, but all the way back in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, but in a very unique way. There in Genesis, in a story about a man and a woman in a garden, and the holy God, the creator, would come into this garden and walk and talk with the man and the woman as their father and their friend. And the holy God there had a standard, and the man and the woman did not abide by that standard. They sinned. They did what he forbade them to do. And when they had sinned, they heard the sound of the holy God coming through the garden as he always did to meet with them. But this time, instead of running to meet him as they normally did, they hid. And when the holy God found them and asked them why, this is what they said. They said, we, we heard the sound of you in the garden. And we were afraid. Because we were naked. And so we hid. Now, that's not a fairy tale. It's history, but it's not a history lesson. That's a story about our hidden inner lives on a daily basis. The sting of death is sin, Paul says. In other words, death is scary. It stings because we know 
that God is waiting there on the other side of death and we're afraid to meet with him because we've sinned and we're naked and we're ashamed and we have no way of clothing ourselves against the searching eyes of his justice. And the thought, just the thought of facing him in judgment reduces us to ash. Kids, have you ever had this happen? Uh, It's the middle of the day, and you do something really stupid, really bad, and your mom finds out, but instead of punishing you, she says the immortal words, just wait until your dad gets home. Right? I mean, it sends shivers down my spine just thinking about it, because it didn't happen very often, and I know this is no longer, you know, you get arrested for this sort of thing uh, now. Right? And, and really, as a kid, it, um, it didn't happen very often. But when my father spanked, he didn't spank with his hands. There were tools around to do that with. Right? And a belt hurts a whole lot more than a hand does. And he's a whole lot bigger than my mom was. And so, kids, if that's ever happened to you, or adults, if, that, if it ever happened to you when you were a kid, right? Middle of the day, you do something dumb. Mom says, wait until your dad gets home. What's the rest of the day like? Right, You sit on the couch, you do nothing, you just sit there watching the clock, the minutes tick by on the clock, right? There's no, there's no running outside in the yard playing ball with your friends, right? And then you hear the slam of the car door in the driveway, and what? You run and you dive under the covers of your bed and you pray to God for mercy, Right? <laughs> Right? <laughs> and what, what, Paul, what Paul's saying, what the Bible's saying is that it's a picture of the way we go through life every day. With that same state of mind that I had on those afternoons waiting for my dad to get home to spank me. And death is like, hear, death is like hearing the car door slam in the driveway. The wrecking is right around the corner. And it scares us to death. The sting of death is sin. See? So what do you do? When you know the holy God is waiting for you on the other side of death, not to embrace you as a father and friend, but as a righteous judge, and your heart gets full of fear because you know you're naked and you have no way of clothing yourself, what do you do? Well, see, there's a strategy that sounds like a good idea, but in reality only adds to the fear. And then there's a strategy that can take it away, and they're both right here. So let's talk for a minute about the wrong strategy first, the one that compounds the fear. So look there at verse 56 again. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, was haunted by the fear of God's judgment in a way that I promise you nobody else in this room ever has been. It terrorized him. And the metaphor he used to describe this in his writings is an accounting ledger. He said, and if you're an accountant, this will make sense to you. Luther said... Uh, that he had committed, he knew he committed terrible sins and therefore was in the red. And he was running a deficit. And so in his mind, the only way to get in the black was to figure out how to do more good than he had done bad to compensate for his sins by doing good things instead. So he decided, you know, what better can I do than to become a monk so that every moment of my day, every day of my life could be spent in total devotion to God. He became a monk, but once he became a monk, he realized that even inside of monasticism, there were levels of strictness, and so he decided to be the best monk there ever was. He would fast for days, 
in weeks. He would stay up all night, night after night, praying instead of sleeping, so much so that, that he, uh, it affected his health for the rest of his life. He destroyed his body. And the problem was that no matter how much he did, it was never enough. He was never able to feel like the ledger was balanced. He was just as terrified at the end of all of his striving to do good as he was at the beginning. And even more so, really, because he realized, I've done all this stuff, and it's not gotten me any closer to what I'm trying to accomplish. And so he was discouraged and overwhelmed. He'd done everything he possibly could do, and it wasn't enough. And the story of Genesis has an explanation for this as well. We're told that the man and the woman in the garden realized they were naked, And when they realized they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover their nakedness. And see, that's what Luther was doing. It's what we do. It's what the Apostle Paul means by law. Do you see that? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of the sin is the law. In other words, one strategy for overcoming the fear of facing God in judgment on the other side of death is to become a good person, to get religion, to start going to church, to be a nice person, to help people, to try to make sure... That on that day, when you meet God face to face, there's more good than there is bad. Right? That's law. And underneath this idea of law is this, is this prevalent theology that God's love and acceptance, it really is me believing that God's love and acceptance of me on the day when I meet him is really based upon my performance. And if I perform well, well, he'll, then he'll accept me. If I perform poorly... Judgment, right? Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's law. Because what matters in that system, what makes the difference is whether you've been good or whether you've been bad. But here's the problem. Law can't take away the sting of death. It only makes it worse. See that? The sting of death is sin, and the power behind sin is this performance-based morality. Trying to do good things so God will see. Being afraid because I've done bad things and God's seen. The power behind sin is the law. Okay, That's the first point of the sermon. The sting of death is sin. The power of the sin is, is the law. But keep reading with me. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the second point. See, we learn from the Apostle Paul not just what the sting of death is, we also learn how we can overcome the sting and live a life free of the fear of death. There's a victory. There's a victory, and it's what we celebrate this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ by which he takes away death's sting. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. In other words, it's possible To live a life free of death's sting, mocking death, not cowering in the corner in fear of it. But how? And it's right here what Paul says. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has taken away death's sting, and we can share in his victory. But in order to understand how, okay, you have to read verse 57 in light of the entire chapter, and we've been doing this for the past four weeks. If you've not been here, I've got to catch you up. And what we've been talking about for three weeks now is the doctrine of our union with Christ. That is, that if you are a Christian, if you've, that means if you've put your faith and trust in Christ to save you, then you literally change addresses. You change locations. Your life, the way the Bible puts it, your life gets hidden 
in Christ, which means that when you believe in Jesus, what faith does is faith bring you believe into him. You become one with him the way a husband and wife who are no longer two individuals, but when they get married, they become one new unit. And the result of this doctrine of union with Christ is being united to him by faith is that what goes for him goes for you. And there are all kinds of practical ways that works itself out. Jesus was raised. I'm in him. So I was raised with him. See what goes for him goes for me. Jesus was victorious over sin and death. I'm in him. So I share in his victory. Literally. Now I know this is a hard concept. Uh, to try to grasp. So let me try to illustrate it this way. If you look back in Hebrews 2, I want you to look there again. The writer of Hebrews in verse 10 calls Jesus the founder of our salvation. Do you see that there? And that word is a really important word. It means something like pioneer or author or leader, captain. Uh, In other source material outside the Bible, the Greek word is used to refer to the hero of a city who founded it and then gave his name to it and became the guardian of the city, okay? So given that cultural context, it's probably best to understand the word within the framework of the popular cult figures in Hellenistic society, the divine hero who descended from heaven to earth in order to rescue mankind from some sort of threat. So probably the best example from Greek literature would be Hercules, who is referred to over and over again in ancient literature by using this same Greek word. And one story from the account of Hercules in particular where Hercules wrestles with death in order to rescue the princess Alcetus from his clutches and was victorious. And with all that cultural, those cultural parallels in mind, Hebrews calls Jesus our founder, our hero, our champion. It's very specific what's going on here. Uh, what, What the Bible means by this idea of champion is something that's very, very important theologically for us to understand. Uh, and the story that I know that, that is the best story to illustrate is the story of David and Goliath. And so I, if you're here and you're not familiar with, with the Bible, or if you're here and you are, in the Old Testament there's a story about David who was to become king of God's people Israel. And, and the story sets up this way, that the, the armies of Israel and their mortal enemies, the Philistines, were encamped on two different sides of, of a valley. So on the two ridges, each of the armies were camped. And every day... Goliath, the giant, this nine-foot-tall man, this imposing figure who was, in, who was the champion of the Philistines would come out from the Philistine camp and would yell at the Israelites, pick a champion to fight me. And if your champion wins, then we will serve you. But if I win, then you will serve us. And it was established military practice or protocol where instead of the armies fighting against one another, Each army would choose a champion, a representative, to fight for them in their place. And if their champion won, then they won. If he lost, they lost. So when David fought as Israel's champion, he fought as their legal representative. He fought as Israel. They were in him, so to speak. And as it went for David, so it went for him. They would be treated as if they had done everything that he did. And of course, he won. And in winning, the people won. Now, obligatory cultural reference on Easter. I thought, maybe there's another way to illustrate this. And then I thought, this is perfect, right? And don't laugh, because I'm serious, okay? The best cultural, pop cultural reference I can think of is Rocky IV, where Rocky Balboa squared off against Drago 
Anybody remember? No, oh, you're looking at... Thank you, Ivan. Nobody remembers this movie. It was good, okay, kids? You need to tell your parents to let you see it. And here it was in the middle of the Cold War, and there was this Russian champion fighting the American boxing champion, and it was such this big event, so much so that it really wasn't about those two guys in the ring. It was about two countries who were at war with one another. And when Rocky won, we won, right? And he was draped in the American flag, and he made that really impassioned speech at the end of the movie. You're not with me, are you, at all? You see what I'm saying? But all of the hopes, you know, lay in the champion that went into the ring to fight for us as a people. Right? And it's this idea that Hebrews is tapping into. When Hebrews calls Jesus our champion, it means that like Hercules, like David against Goliath, like Rocky against Drago, Jesus came to do battle against sin and death as our representative. And Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience as us. He died on the cross for our sins as us. He rose from the dead as us. And that's how he takes away the sting of death. See, the sting of death is sin. It's knowing that when we die, God's waiting for us and we'll have to face him. And knowing that if the blazing eyes of his holiness fall on us, that we'll be consumed because of our record in sin and selfishness. But here, okay. But what if... What if God's love and acceptance of us wasn't based upon our performance? What if there was one who would stand in for us on that day when we have to face God? What if, what if we had a champion whose record was not sin and selfishness, but perfect obedience, sinless perfection, so that God would look upon him and say, well done, good and faithful servant. What if we were treated as if we had done that everything that he did. And that's the promise of the gospel. That on the cross, Jesus was treated by God as if he had done everything we have done. God's wrath came down upon him in judgment against our sins. But because Jesus was treated as if he had done everything we have done, now God looks at us and treats us as if we have done everything Jesus did. And if your faith is in Jesus, God not only forgives your sins, but you get his perfect record of righteousness. You're in him, and what goes for him goes for you. So Micah, the prophet, says it this way, God in Christ has tread our sins under his foot and cast them into the depths of the sea and remembers them no more. (laughs) And if you're here, and your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then no matter how much you still struggle with sin, there is no sin. You've changed locations. You've changed addresses. You're in Christ. You might still sin, but there's no sin. Now, and if there's no more sin, then there's no more fear. Christian, You have no fear. You have no reason to fear facing God on the other side of death because there's nothing in you for him to condemn. He's already judged your sins on the cross. Christian, death has no sting for you because Christ Jesus was crucified for your sins and was raised for your justification. So, 
When you are raised, you will meet God. He'll be there waiting for you, but not as a judge ready to vanquish you. He's waiting for you as a father and friend to embrace you and welcome you home. And that's what Martin Luther came to understand, which birthed the Protestant Reformation. And he said, when, when, this, when this truth really began to dawn upon his heart and become real to him, this is the way he put it. He said, <laughs> he said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. I'm praying that that will happen to some of us today. He went on, Luther, to say, If you have a true faith in Christ as your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. Listen to this. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger. He who sees an angry God, he who sees God as angry, does not see him rightly, but looks only at a curtain as if a dark cloud has been drawn across his face. You hear that? He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud has been drawn across God's face. So if you still see God as angry, Christian, then the sting of death remains. And if you're here, you're not a Christian, right? There's no solution to your sin problem yet. Because the only solution is faith in Christ Jesus, and so the sting remains. But if you're here and you're a Christian... If because of Christ our champion, you see that God is not angry, that he is your father, and that he is your friend, the result will be the sting of death will be gone forever. And so then the last thing, as we wrap it up, what does that mean? What does that look like? What will happen in your life when that begins, when when, when your life gets drained of the fear of death? Okay, there are four things in verse 58. I'm just going to tick them off really quick. Paul says uh, four things that happen to you when the sting of death is taken away. Okay, and here they are. Uh, I'm going to start at the end of verse 58, work backwards towards the beginning, because I think it just flows better that way. Paul says, when the sting of death has been taken away, these four things. You won't be afraid. You won't be selfish. You won't move. You won't quit. You won't be afraid. You won't be selfish. You won't move. You won't quit. Okay? Let's just walk through those four things. The first thing that happens to you is this. Paul says you won't be afraid. Because the resurrection transforms death from loss to gain. Look there uh, at the very end of the verse. Knowing, Paul says, that your labor in the Lord is not vain. And the language is meant to take you right back to Genesis 3, where because of sin, the world is cursed, and every, all of our work, and t- we're going to toil and labor. That's that word there. And it's all going to be vanity. But what, what Paul is saying is that in Jesus Christ, the curse is being lifted from the earth and from our lives. And so now, even when life gets hard, even when things really start to go bad, you lose somebody you love, or your life just begins to fall apart, Paul says even that is not in vain. The victory of death, the the power of the fear of death lies in us thinking that it is the end of everything that we love and long for. But the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday declares that death is not the end. It is the beginning of everything we love and long for. Death, according to the Bible, is not loss. It is gain. That's what we celebrate this morning. The resurrection transforms death from loss to gain. And when that happens, you won't be afraid anymore. But the second thing that happens to you, not only will you not be afraid, but you won't be selfish. 
You won't live a small, safe, selfish life. You'll become a hero. Look at the way Paul says it. He says, um, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's a double positive. Abounding means overflowing with good works, but always overflowing with good works. All the time, every day, an excess of energy for doing God's work. In other words, all of the energy of your life going towards serving God and others, not just having a good time, not just life as a perpetual vacation, but life as a mission, a battle, an adventure. You won't be afraid and you won't be selfish. But the third thing that happens when your life gets free of the fear of death is you won't move. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be immovable, he says. In other words, there's a solidity, there's a constancy to your life. You won't, you won't, you wouldn't be pushed around by people. You wouldn't back down from any challenge, right? No matter how overwhelming. You'd live with an emotional strength and constancy that, would, that wouldn't fluctuate with your circumstances. Immovable. I love that. Would you pray that for me? Right? That sense of being in a rock. Not tossed to and fro, right? I live, that's how I live my life. Anybody else? Woo! Woo! We're going to be here. Right? That, I mean, that is just the way I live. A rock. Immovable. Right? And then lastly, the last thing that, we're, that Paul says happens when your life gets free of the fear of death is you won't be afraid, you won't be selfish, you won't move, and you won't quit. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Right? That word's the opposite of the kind of life I described at the beginning of the sermon. Cautious and wary and restrained and jumpy and joyless. It is, it is the pervasive fear of death that creates that kind of life. But what if the fear gets taken away? Well, then you'll become steadfast. You'll be adventurous. You'll take risks. You'll be unwavering. And you'll endure all the way to the end through whatever trial might come. And isn't that, isn't that what we love about all the heroes and the stories we tell? That their complete disregard for their own safety, their refusal to quit when it gets hard, their willingness to fling themselves into danger to to defeat the enemy and to save their friends. Isn't that what you love? Paul says you can become like that. And so this morning, we celebrate the triumph of of our champion over sin and death, but what Paul's saying is that when we see him, when the truth of our victorious hero becomes the truth that we live our lives by, then it will transform us into heroes too. Steadfast immovable, abounding in love all the way to the end. And then on the day when death finally overtakes us, not afraid, bold in faith. Right? No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No scheme, no no power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. See, that's the kind of people our city needs us to be. Men, that's the kind of man your wife and kids need you to be. Canaan and Isaac aren't in here, my kids. Kids, that's the kind of person you want to be when you grow up. So take the opportunity today. Today's the opportunity. Look to Jesus, your champion, your hero, steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in love towards other people. Look to him until he remakes you by his spirit into a hero yourself who could be for others the very thing he has been for you. That's the promise of today. That we can finally begin to live the lives that we've been called to. Not safe, small, selfish lives, but lives that are full and rich and bold and adventurous. So that we might bear fruit that will glorify God. That's our prayer, and so let's pray it together, can we? Father, on this day where we celebrate the triumph of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from the dead... Would you place in our hearts such overwhelming hope and joy uh, that as we sing these songs that we would um, confess to you uh, that the smallness of our lives is not a testimony to your greatness, that the selfishness with which we live our lives is not an adequate witness and testimony to the great love with which you have loved us. And so would you change us as your people Through the power of the resurrection, may the resurrection power come into our lives and resurrect us so that we might be changed into the image of Jesus, bearing fruit that will glorify you. That's our prayer. That's our hope. Would you do that great work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Again, thank you for being here to celebrate with us this morning. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian... um, I, I admonish you um, that, that to fly to Jesus and to put your faith and trust in him. Because if not, death will remain a sting to you. It will be a shadow that lurks at the edges of your life until at the very end when it will overtake you. But if you are a Christian, if, you're fa- see, the hope, if your faith is in Jesus, then what that song we just sang says is that you can sing all the way through life and even up to death and even through it. Right? Because there is no more sting. Death is not lost, it's been turned to gain. And the promise of the benediction is that no matter where you are, no matter what you go out of this room to face, no matter what trial or suffering or toil you might have to endure, my hands are raised over you as a promise that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the Father's amen over his life and yours. And this benediction is his good word to you. And so receive it. And ask the Spirit to bring the truth of it into your heart until it turns you into a person who goes and lives like a hero. Pattern after your hero who triumphed over the dead for you and as you. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Happy Easter. Go in his peace.